Gentlemen, start your engines. This is going to be a mighty emotional occasion for a lot of people, not the least of whom is myself. In a race to remember. But this is absolutely gobsmacking. He hasn't even hit the brake yet. It's gone crazy at the top of the hill. What an off-the-scale car race. G'day, I'm Dan Hollihan. Welcome to my motorsports podcast, On the Couch with Hawley. Brought to you by Sweet Black, creating success with people. Tony Southwell is a former Australian NASCAR series veteran. On today's episode, you hear about his life story, which has been brought to life in a book called The Crucifixion of Southie. He's most known for his fireworks king business that was located in Canberra many years ago. Tony has quite the story to tell on this episode, and I don't want to ruin it for you all. So let's get into it. And welcome to the podcast, Tony Southwell. Tony, we have been chatting for, I don't know, endlessly since like last year since I started this podcast. Dude, you have been on a podcast before a podcast just to get to this podcast. Yeah, I know. We've, um, we've run through a fair bit of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you you were, um, where, where were you living before you moved to Queensland? I've lived my whole life um, on a family property in Bounding, New South Wales, which is just on the Hume Highway, Melbourne side of Yass. So we lived there 50 years, um, and then we sold that recently and moved up to the Fraser Coast. Yeah. And you obviously have also grown up in Newcastle. Is that where you grew up? No, no, I was no. born there. Born there. Born, born there. there. I, I'm a bought baby, so yep. I don't have a belly button. Yep. My parents bought me um, from a church in Newcastle Yep. and brought me back to Yass um, when I was 10 days old. Yeah, right. So you yeah. were adopted. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Can you explain life growing up a bit, like in, in your early days, like which you are going to explain There's your book? There's no or? real difference. Um, my paternal grandparents were really wonderful and um, and they, there was like 27, I think, or six grandkids and I was the only adopted one. Never felt any different, never got treated any differently. Um, so, yeah, it was no different to me. I, I knew from the start that I was adopted, so it wasn't like a revelation. Revelation came years later when I found out that I had a sis- sister and a full sister and two, a half brother and a half sister. Hmm. So that was a bit of a shock. Um, so yeah, but um, no, no different. When did you, when did you make them in your teens? Was it? No, 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 not till I moved to Melbourne. Me and my wife and kids moved to Melbourne in 2012. I bought a towing business down there. Yep. And um, what happened was I, I put a post. I tried in the early 90s to see if I had any um, siblings mm. just because I was getting to that, that age where health was, you know, I was going to worry about health. Yep. So I tried to find out, but there was a veto on my ad- adoption papers, mm. which meant I couldn't contact yeah, right. anyone, you know, like my adopted, my, my birth parents or anyone from my birth family. So uh, it just sort of hit a brick wall. Mm. Then when we were in Melbourne, I decided I, because I'd heard I had a sister Mm. uh, when I did the research, but I wasn't allowed to contact her. And so I looked up this woman, the name of this woman on Facebook, and I found her and I sent her a message, but she didn't reply. Mm. A few years later, when we were living in Melbourne, I thought, oh, fuck it, I'm going to try and find out, you know, who who my birth family was. Yep. So I made a sign and I stood there and just said, um, looking for this woman, uh, apparently she's my sister and this was her last known address in Sydney, if anyone can help me. Mm. 
the power of Facebook when you put something like that up, it got shared 37,000 times. Yeah, right. Wow. Throughout Facebook. Yeah, yeah. In a matter of uh, six or eight hours. Yeah. Obviously, the adoption thing hit a chord with people and they just went nuts. Mm. Next minute, I get a phone call mm. from, because I put my phone number on it, mm. from this woman. And she says, um, is this Tony Southwell? And I said, yeah, who's this? She goes, this is, her name's Michelle as well. She yep. said, this is Michelle. And I said, uh, hi. She said, what's this story? Yeah. You know, because I don't have any. She's, she was adopted out by the same people. Yeah, okay. What had happened was um, a friend of her who, who's, who's a police officer saw the post and actually went to her house and <laughs> said, you, you better see this. Wow. <laughs> so she rang. And, yeah. and when I explained it all to her and told her what I knew, then she knew that it was real. Mm. And the story is that what had happened was our biological parents had had her young Mm-hmm. And put her up for adoption, mm. but it wasn't vetoed. Yeah. Then they had me, and obviously decided that they didn't want to have two adopted babies out there in the world that no one knew about. So they vetoed mine, mm. which which you can do. Then they um then the mother or the woman remarried, mm. and she had two more kids. Yeah. So. The other, no one knew about me, no one in their whole family. So I was a huge shock to everyone. Yeah. So the, um, my full sister, Michelle, uh, we've got a great relationship. Mm-hmm. She came down to Melbourne and visited us and we keep in contact. Yep. Uh, my half sister, um, I, I have a re- relationship with, like she talks to me, uh, but we don't, we don't like regularly communicate, mm. but my half brother, he wants nothing to do with it. Yeah, right. It really freaked him out. Yeah. Because. Is that like we, a PTSD type of thing? Well, maybe. The, the issue is that my birth name mm. is very similar to his name. Yeah, okay. So it's like she had another one and she named him the same that she named me. Yeah. So uh, that sort of freaked him out, I think. And um, he, he, having one adopted older sister was enough for him, I think. So. Yeah, I've had no communication with him at all. Yeah. And that's his right. That's fine. Mm. You know, if he doesn't want to talk to me, he doesn't have to. Lots of people don't want to fucking talk to me. <laughs> so, you know, it's, not, it's nothing new. Yeah. So before your, before your Fireworks King business, which is what was promoted on the podcast, before what, where did you start? What was your first job as like a teenager or a kid out of school? Well, I, my first job was Bowser Boy. Yep. And then um, I, got, I got expelled from... I got expelled from, or I went to a Catholic school and I got expelled from there in first form. Mm. And then what had happened was I broke a big sheet of class that was in the science lab. Mm. Being a kid, you know, you do silly things like you'd pick it up mm. and you'd drop it and it made this really great noise when it hit the bench and all yeah. the air getting out from under it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one time I picked <laughs> it up, it must have been a bit crooked and it came down and it smashed. Yeah. Moving forward, uh, I, was, I missed the lunch bell one day and going up to get my lunch, mm. you had, I had to be there at a certain time. Mm. It was a Catholic school with brutal, brutal fucking nuns. Yeah. You know, all, the, all the, the stuff about the priests, you know, fucking kids and all the shit yeah, that's yeah, gone yeah. on with that. Yeah. There should also be some liability on the, the way the nuns treated kids too, you know, because yeah, right. they were brutal. 
Anyway, a lay teacher spotted me going to get my lunch. Mm. And I was a bit of an asshole even then yeah. at 11 or 12. And she said, where are you going? I said, to get my lunch. Mm. And she said, you're late. And she grabbed me by the arm and I just pulled out of her arm yeah. and said, I'm getting my lunch. And she had an engagement ring on and she slapped me across the face and cut my face. No way. Yeah. Fucking hell. So I just fucking stormed out and went down to see my dad. Mm. And my dad was a real, really understated guy. Mm. He was a great. You looked up to him, didn't you? Oh, very much. He was a big man and a very well-respected man in the community. Mm -hmm. Raised millions of dollars for the local community. He was a member of the Lions Club. Mm. And he also was a top first grade rugby league player. Yeah, right. Who did he play for? He played for for Yass. Yep. But he also was offered um trials and just mm. play with St. George and Parramatta. Yep. But he in those days the money wasn't any different. Country rugby league was huge. Like we, we, I country rugby league was my whole childhood. Yep. So mum not driving, we'd have to go early to the games because dad would drive and we'd have to be there really early because you would have to queue up for a mile to mm. get into the football grounds, whether yeah. it be Goulburn or Yassa or wherever. So dad got offered this to go to St. St. George was the one that really wanted him because another Yass player had gone there, mm. a guy called Donnie Burge, who had a lot of success there and actually came back to captain coach Yass. So dad had just started his own hairdressing shop. And barbershop, mm. and he sort of weighed it all up and decided that he'd rather play for Yass and stay with his family and yeah, not do the would. Sydney thing. Because, see, in the, you've got to think in the late 50s and early 60s, rugby league in Sydney was on the radio. Mm. So the only place, place that you listened to it was on the wireless. It wasn't like as big and mainstream as it is now. Obviously, those players were stu- still looked up to in a big way, but the money the guys in the country were getting then, like if you if you were in the grand final hmm. and you won, you hmm. got the gate, yeah. the team. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so yeah. so it was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so anyway, he um, so, yeah, he was a real matter-of-fact guy and he only spoke when he had something to say mm-hmm. and he always handled things perfectly. Hmm. So he said to me, I went down and told him what had happened and he said, listen, go to Davey Lawrence's local hardware store Buy that shoot of glass you broke the other week and return it to the school. Don't say anything about what this cunt's done to you, this yep. fucking woman. Just yep. go back and take the glass back. So I went, all right. So I went to David Lawrence's and I got the sheet of glass cut and it was $12. So this is 19... That's expensive for them back then, isn't it? Yeah, this is yeah. 1973 maybe. Yep. So $12 it cost me. Mm. So I took it to the school and I walked into the head nun, her name was Sister Joan, and she was a fucking cunt of a thing, a brutal fucking bitch, you yeah, know? Yeah, they loved, they loved caning us kids. They loved hurting you, you know? Mm-hmm. They would blister your fingers one day, and then they would bust them the next day, yeah. you know? So I walked into her office with this sheet of glass, all, you know, probably 40, 50 kilos of me, and I went to give it to her, and I said, here's your sheet of glass, Sister Joan. And I just picked it up and just fucking smashed it on a fucking table on a desk. <laughs> so that was my last day at the school. Yeah. So then I went to the Ass High School and I ended up being expelled from there as well. Um, Do you remember what you were expelled for from there? I was just at a lot of things. I was yeah. just, I just wasn't, I wasn't much for this whole learning thing. Yeah. I didn't like school. Yeah. 
I, I went for two two reasons. I went for to metalwork and to perv. Yeah, that's why I went to school. Yeah, I had one exercise book. Yep, for three years of high school. Yep, and then you just write shit in there, and that's that was it. that was had every every subject, everything was in one exercise book. Yep. I just didn't give a fuck about it. Yeah. So, uh, so my dad. It's funny how th- history repeats itself. When my dad left school, his father took him down the street in Yass to the local hairdresser, local barber, a guy called Gordon Bush, mm. and said, "You've got an apprenticeship with Gordon Bush. You start here on Monday." Mm. Right. So, dad had no choice. You know what his job was going to be. He he wanted to be a carpenter or a builder. Yeah. I wanted to be a mechanic, but every prick in my class was a f- becoming a mechanic. Mm. So he took me down to Alan Fisher, um, which Alan Fisher was a local who had an engineering business. And this guy was hugely respected and brought so much to the community. He's someone that, you know, if you knew him, he's a little guy but tough as fucking nails. Mm. So went down there and, and t- took me to see Alan Fisher and got me a job as an apprentice welder. And I started there the, the following Wednesday. I'd just turned 15. And what happened at school was I got called into the office of my uh, metalwork teacher and he just said to me, you've really got two choices. Either find a job or, you know, you're going to be expelled from here as well and it's just not going to look good. Mm. So I told Dad and Dad went and organised it. So I started, I got, I got an apprenticeship as a, as a welder. Mm-hmm. and. So, so the first part of my young adult life, I was worked as a welder. I worked there for my apprenticeship. Then I went to Canberra um, to another welding place. I worked on the construction of the. Um, you loved Canberra growing up as a kid, though, didn't you? That was like Tels- well, when like, I was you like the my, Chinese shop, the Chinese oh, restaurant. <laughs> the, well, it was the first. It was the first restaurant I ever went to as a child. It's called Happy's, and yeah. it's and it was open in nineteen sixty two. And I was born in 62, and that was like mum and dad's big night out was to go to Happy's Chinese. And it's yeah. still there and still owned by the same family. Yeah. Was that a technically like one of the first fast food restaurants in? It was the first Chinese restaurant, oh, first Chinese in, restaurant in Canberra. Yeah, okay. So, so yeah, so I w- worked in Canberra, worked on the Telstra Tower, which w- was a big job. Mm-hmm. Worked on, and then, then I ended up having my own business and working on the construction of the new Parliament House. And I did every single handrail in that building, a yeah. huge building. The brand new one, like the, new, yeah, the latest yeah, parliament yeah. house. Wow. I did all the external handrails and all the internal handrails. Every single handrail through the staircases, outstairs, everyone is mm. mine. Do they have secret rooms and stuff in parliament? It's really funny. That, you know, that, you know, talking about, you know, politicians fucking their secretaries and fucking yeah. their assistants and all this shit. There's a room about this big, yeah. right in the centre of it, underneath the flagpole. Wow. And it was called the meditation room, yep. right? But someone even put it, this is when we're walking there, someone wrote on the door with a texter, um, you know, assistant fucking room or something like that. Really? And that's what Holy it was for. Shit. It was for these guys, these pollies, to, to fuck. go fuck their assistants in. Holy shit. Yeah, but yeah, it was right. called the meditation room. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow, holy And that's shit. that room still there now. That yeah. room, and that's what it is. It's called the medicine. It's only a really little box like this. Yeah, it's just a small little box. A little hideaway, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you sat on Facebook the other day. Obviously, TVs are a mainstream thing these days. Everyone's got them, you know, yeah. every man and their dog. But back then, you were, telling about, you were talking about TV licenses. 
Yeah, you used to, in, in Australia and uh, lots of countries throughout the world, when TVs first started, you had to have a TV licence. And the TV inspector would come around, or the communications inspector, I think he was called, would come around doing laps of the streets yeah. to see if you could see flickering in windows or aerials or whatever. And I remember my mum and dad, when we lived in Yass, having a huge argument one night because mum spotted the TV inspector and when dad hadn't bought a licence. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I don't think he came and I don't think we got caught. Mm. But, yeah, yeah, there was big fines, you know, probably 30 bucks or something in those days. But, yeah, we in Australia had to have TV licences. How did you start the fireworks, King? Okay, so we... We'll go back and forth here, but yeah, we'll we start moved, with the Yeah, we moved to Bounding. Um, me and my first wife bought a, bought a house in Bounding and I was working at Parliament House. Mm. And then we moved to Melbourne with the racing. Yep. I actually moved down there. For the, for the NASCAR thing. And then when we moved back to Canberra, I was pretty busted ass. We'd had to sell our house. Um, we didn't have any money. And I had a mate who was a few years older than me who was a bit of a character, a bit of a rogue. He was an ex-Vietnam vet. And he introduced me to an old guy who was a scumbag, fucking scumbag, who had a little, like, toy shop in Fishwick. Yeah. And he sold crackers. Yeah. And he was called Cracker Man. Yeah. So he was crackers, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I bought, I was working as, for a friend, Jeff, as, uh, as a concreter. And I was earning $500 a week cash. She was paying me cash. That was, that was it. And I bought a carton of fireworks called Goon Lee. Mm. And they were just, they were big crackers. And I thought, I'll see if I can sell a few to some of my mates. Yep. And if if I if I make any money and I got some left, yeah, I can, I'll have them. I sold the whole carton before the end of the weekend, and I'd made two and a half grand. So I just reinvested that two and a half grand in buying more, mm. and then more off this guy. Off or? this guy, yeah, yeah okay. initially, yeah, yeah. And I I take him down to Calder, and mm. then I took a truck to Calder. Yep. Full of fireworks. Full of fireworks. And sold, <laughs> sold forty or $50,000 worth yeah. over the weekend. So well, then what happened, me and my mate Ray, we decided, we looked into the rules and regulations and everyone thought fireworks were banned. And they mm. still do now, but they're not actually. The fireworks aren't banned. Mm. You just have to jump through the hoops and get the right licenses. You can still get fireworks if you want to. So we discovered that you could still sell fireworks. So we decided we would go to China, buy fireworks for the Queen's birthday weekend in Canberra, set up all these shops. Did you go to China actually? Or did oh, you yeah, I've it? been 12 times. Yeah, okay. How was it going the first time? This, the well, the first yeah. time was the big one because what happened was we needed to spend, I think it was $150,000 in fireworks we needed to buy fireworks. We didn't have it. Yep. So this guy, Victor, who was a little Chinese guy in Fishwick, mm. hooked us up with uh, the Chinese mafia. Yeah. These really, really bad cunts, really, yeah, like right. really bad cunts. And, and I went over to meet them. And the deal was that they would, they would guarantee the payment of our fireworks for $40,000. Yep. So we could, get, we could go to the fireworks company in China, order all the fireworks we needed for the Queen's birthday weekend, 150 grand. And they would guarantee it for a further forty grand. Yep. And if we didn't pay, obviously they were going to come after us. Yep. So I, I just my life was so fucked up at that stage that I had nothing to lose. Mm. So we took the deal. Mm. 
imported the the fireworks back to Australia, had our Queen's birthday weekend, and it was fucking massive. Yeah. Absolutely fucking massive. Sold sold everything. Sold yep. like millions of dollars worth of fucking fireworks. Yeah. I turned five hundred dollars into into two million bucks in one year. Holy shit! And anyway, did you know what to do with the money? Or you just were crazy with it. Oh, just drugs, hookers, and fucking fast cars. You yeah, know? it's just out of control. <laughs> yeah. Um. So went back to China to take the money, and I had I had to smuggle two hundred thousand dollars into China. Yeah. In a briefcase, so four of us went: myself, my mate Ray, this fucking dirtbag that had the cracker man. And uh, hang around, he had this tall, fucking red-headed, yeah. fucking wanker. So we, I, over we go, and Ray said, let's split the money up between us, you know. And I said, that's fucking stupid. Why Why yeah. all of us get busted? Look, just you give it to me, I'll take it. Yeah. So uh, on the plane, had $200,000 in the briefcase, 150 for the fireworks, 40 for the bad guys, and 10 spending money for me. Mm-hmm. So getting on the plane, leaving Australia, that wasn't any problem at all. We were worried about. So what we decided to do was flying to Guangzhou, uh, rather than flying to you know, a major centre like Hong Kong or anywhere with this money. So flowing to Hong into Guangzhou, and when we got there, I've got my briefcase, and we're walking out of the airport, and this young soldier spots me, eyeballs me, and he's a little tiny guy, and he's got a fucking machine gun, and he starts making a beeline straight towards me. So I just made a beeline straight towards him, <laughs> just fucking glaring at the little cunt, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden he just dis- must have decided, fuck this, and he just walked the other <laughs> way. <laughs> so we got the money in. Yeah. So I hired a, a the top floor of a big catamaran to take us from Guangzhou up the, up the river mm. to China. Yeah. Now, this was f- really fucking great because it was the day that China was being handed back over Hong Kong was being handed back to China. Yeah, okay. So, so it was we a distraction, were, was it? Right? Was it a distraction for you to do your stuff or was it? No, it was just great. To, yeah. We didn't plan it like that, but it was great to be there on such a monumental day in history, you know. Yeah, yeah. Fireworks and celebrations and it was just really cool. So we, we got the top floor of this um, catamaran and the four of us just partied our asses off in the top floor drinking champagne and taking this money. And we get there and we go Did to you have hookers and stuff there when you... When no, you no, 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 no. That was just... This is just a business deal. This was a... Yeah. So yeah. We, then we go to... Oh, we, this other guy did this big tour. He had, had this thing in the hotel that we stayed in, which was an American hotel, called Missy Massage. Mm. So he went upstairs for massage. He got cock pulled. So yeah. he was right into it. Yeah, that. yeah. So um, anyway, we go back to the... Meet these guys at this really high-end restaurant in Hong Kong. Mm. Go up there. The fireworks company people were there who were actually government guys mm. um, pretending to be private enterprise, but they weren't. They were government guys who had this mm. fireworks business. We handed over the 150 to them, gave the bad guys the 40, and partied with these guys all night. It was fucking great. You know? <laughs> We had a huge night with these guys and, and, you know, there's no way I would ever go back and do it again yeah. because the risk is far too great. But, yeah, it was great. So then we went back to Guangzhou, set up more fireworks deals and did all that sort of mm. stuff. With the same Chinese mafia guys? No, 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 no. no, no. Okay. The Chinese mafia died. We didn't need them anymore. Yeah, we, had, okay. we had our float now. We had everything we needed. Yep. So, yeah, the fireworks king just took off, you know, mm. ended, up being, ended up being huge. I had shops all over Australia. Distribution network, all legal, mm. but we're also 
um, selling you know, bungers and yeah. And the, so back then, because I was before the fireworks era, I was in the born in born in eighty eight. But you had like shops kind of like franchised out, really. Did you the fireworks yeah. throughout Sydney and Melbourne? Yeah, and Mel- Sydney, Adelaide. Well, not, um, oh. well, not I think we had one in Adelaide. We had we had a big presence in Darwin. Yep. Uh, we had a one in Newcastle. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we, but we had basically had people doing distribution for us in every state. Mm. Um, the sh- we, I think we had five or six shops, actual shop fronts. Mm. But yeah, it was a, it ended up being the police, the, co- the the government in Canberra had me in court seventy six fucking times trying to close us down. The, your business, yeah, seventy, and they, and they lost every, every. fucking time. <laughs> Why was that? What was that? What was the reason that they lost? Because we brought to the public what yep. they'd been tricking everyone was illegal, and uh, there was no legislation to make fireworks illegal. Mm. They did, all they did in the 70s was they changed the rules. Yeah. So when they changed the rules, all the toy shops and everyone's just stopped selling it because they, so they didn't want to do the paperwork and stuff. Yep. So they raided my shop. They raided my shop in, in Fishwick and with a truck and police and yep. fucking all this stuff. The federal police or was it just yeah, the and ju- took yeah. everything, took everything out of my shop. So went to court and I won the court case and they had to give it all back. Now the the... Dangerous Goods Department of the ACT government obviously didn't want the publicity of not only losing the case but giving the fireworks back. So they wanted to know could we do it in a secure location. Right? Mm-hmm. They didn't want to come to my shop. So I had a mate, Chills, who had a um, an engineering shop in, shop in Fishwick. So I said, there's a little alleyway in this engineering where this engineering shop is. Let's do it down there. So I rang up the Canberra television yeah. station, the news. Yep. And told them what was going on, and they come and set up cameras and, <laughs> and, we, yeah. we, and, and film the government have giving all my fireworks back. <laughs> That's great. Which they fucking hated. <laughs> Holy so, shit. Um, so we got it all back, and then they would just bust us again for different things and, and went on and on and on. Yeah. And eventually they won. Eventually they got me, you know, many years later and really fucked me up big time. And then they changed the legislation again, but the legislation, it's still legal. You just have to do the things that you want to do. But I'd, I had enough. Did you ever do fireworks for like the Sydney Harbour Bridge or anything like that? Oh, no, no. They're, just like they're, they're, big, stuff. they're big fireworks display companies. That do. We, did, we did fireworks displays for smaller organisations, mm-hmm. you know, like city councils on New Year's mm-hmm. Eve and those sort of things and, and weddings and parties and stuff like that. We did all that, mm-hmm. but not the really big stuff. That's, that's for the big guys who, do, yeah. who just do displays. Yeah, I was more... Wholesale and retail. How did you get involved in music? Because you're now like a music promoter, and this is what we'll get into the Speedway stuff later. But how did you get involved in music, and what was your love for it? Like, was well, it when from, I was younger, when I was younger, I loved I loved music. I loved Australian music. Mm-hmm. When I was about eleven, I bought an album when I was eleven years old called "Towards the Blues" by the band Chain, mm-hmm. and I didn't know what it was. I just bought it for the cover because we didn't have a proper record shop. We had an electrical store, yes, and they just had records. And you just go through them. And I bought this one because it was a really cool cover and got home and it just changed my fucking life. Yep. So I ended up really getting into that. And then some of my friends had bands and I used to go and get up and have a sing with them. And until they were playing at a bar in Canberra under the MLC tower one night. And there was a bunch of, bunch of girls having a party and mm-hmm. I was singing Wild Thing. And I. Decided to sing Wild Thing, you make my cock swing and yeah. pulled my cock out and started waving it around on stage. 
And yeah. Then, that's actually on your cover of your book, isn't it, behind us? Oh, yeah, um, well, like, this, well, that's not yeah. me doing it. That's me on the crucifix. But, yeah, so I did that. Boys got the shits because they got kicked. we got kicked out of the venue. Then a week later, I did it again. Hmm. So I got banned from being on stage. Yeah. Couldn't sing for shit anyway. But hmm. So then I just started booking bands. Hmm. And then I ended up with friendships with, you know, like the boys from that band Chain and lots of other you know, high-end musical guys. And then when me and Michelle got married in 2000, mm. uh, 2001 maybe, yeah. 2001, I booked some really, three really famous Australian guys to come and play at our wedding, mm. which was Phil Manning, the character guitarist from Chain and arguably Australia's greatest guitar player, uh, Kevin Borridge from the La Dars and the Kevin Borridge Express and Phil Emanuel mm. all played at our engagement party. And then we had them back for the wedding. And then I sort of got serious, more serious about booking. But I, I met Stevie Wright from the Easy Beats. Yep. What had happened was I was in Melbourne years ago and I was staying at the old Melbourne Hilton. And I came down in the morning for breakfast. And when I went into the, to the restaurant area for breakfast, it was packed. There was people everywhere. I looked around and I spotted Stevie Wright, like the actual fucking Stevie Wright, yeah. sitting at a table by himself having breakfast. <laughs> and he spotted me, yeah. realising that I'm looking for a table, and he just beckoned me over. He said, come and sit with me. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck. And that you're starstruck. Oh, fuck, yeah. I was yeah. blown away. You know, yeah, it's yeah, fucking yeah. Stevie Wright. So I went over and I sat down and I had breakfast with Stevie Wright, and we just hit it off mm. and, and became instant friends. Mm. Swapped our contact details and stuff, and then we just – we just started doing things together. I started booking a few gigs for him. My son, when my son James started playing guitar, he started playing for Stevie. Mm. And um, yeah, I was so get into that talk about James. Yeah, yeah, so so Stevie, you know, became really good friend. Yeah, and and I really get annoyed because people post things about Stevie on Facebook, and they they don't know that they don't know the truth about Stevie. They think they think about his heroin problems and mm. you know they say it ruined his career and all this sort of stuff but they don't know the truth you know stevie's stevie's big problem wasn't that ended his career wasn't his drugs mm. he he broke his foot falling out of a window he, he, he left the keys to his flat inside and he climbed up a, a drain pipe and yeah. fell and broke Ooh, his foot and got yes. a compound fracture and when he went to hospital to have it operated on he got golden staff and he ended up with a black foot and he couldn't yeah. walk. So Ooh, that was shit. what ruined his career. Yeah. And, yeah, so I just get so sick of people being negative about him because he was one of the greatest. You know, mm. some of his music will live on forever. Mm. And he knocked the fucking Beatles off the charts, mm. you know. So, so yeah, so that, that was sort of it. And I just started doing the music things. I, I booked a huge concert for Stevie's last ever major concert appearance. Mm-hmm which was uh, like the who's who of the Australian rock and roll industry and the backing band were the best players in Australia. Mm. And, and then just went from there and then, and then got more serious about it. I actually got really serious only a few years ago about booking festivals. When I got diagnosed with psychodosis in 2017, I couldn't work anymore, couldn't drive tow trucks anymore. Mm. So then I thought, well, what I've been fucking around with for the last 30 years doing the music thing I need to start doing seriously mm. to make a living out of it. So then I started booking festivals all over Australia for for producers and promoters and people who own venues. How do you how do you monitor your disease? 
Like, is there a way? Because remember, we had to stop and go with this podcast. Yeah, yeah. well, I got, I had a really bad flare up mm. and had some issues a month or so ago. Mm. And I've still got some ongoing issues now. But yeah, it's just one of those things that the doctors don't really know enough about. A lot of it's just get guesswork. And the medication I'm on is really shit because it's, I'm on incredibly high doses of a medication that's used for people with transplants. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. it's a it's a anti-rejection medication is the medication I'm on. And my doctor who's looking after me is one of the leading immunologists in Australia. His name is Professor Matthew Cook. He's actually at the ANU in Canberra. So he looks after me. So I've got really good care. But yeah, it's a pretty shit fucking disease. People that have it, it's it's a fucking nightmare. Can you explain a bit about it? Well, it just attacks all of your healthy organs. When I got sick, I got really sick. Yeah. I'd had a few things happen to me over a couple of years when I had a few bouts of not being well. Mm. And I'd had a few CTs and things and they'd found, you know, I had lymph nodes here and then, but mm. they, it always would say nothing remarkable, nothing remarkable. Mm. And then in September 2017, we, me and Michelle and the younger kids went to Melbourne to see our older kids. And while we we're down there, I got really fucking sick. Yeah. Really, really fucking sick. I couldn't move. Couldn't yeah. fucking function at all. And yeah. so we came home. Does it cause arthritis? Well, it's an immune, autoimmune disease, so it can. Mm. I don't have any arthritis. I, I know a bit about autoimmune because my girlfriend has endometriosis and autoimmune. Right. So she has two things as far as asking about it. And it sounds yeah. quite, not, not the same as endometriosis. But yeah, I've similar. got a son who suffers from arthritis really bad. Yeah. Um, and my wife does too, actually, because she has Crohn's. Yeah. Okay. So um, we came back. And started having tests, and they decided I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. Mm. And my, I had a really young female GP, and she said, I don't think you have cancer. I think you have sarcoidosis, this really rare autoimmune disease. I said, oh, okay. So I went, to, like, basically I spent seven months laying on the couch at home or in hospital or in an ambulance shaking and crying and wanting to die. I was in such a bad state. Wow. Because they weren't treating me. Hmm. So I said to the cancer doctor, I said, my GP thinks I might have this thing called sarcoidosis. And she just scoffed and laughed it off and said, you, you don't, you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So then they sent me to see a gut doctor who also specialised in sarcoidosis as, as a part of his, when he was doing gut stuff. I told him, what my GP said, and, and he said, I, I think you have sarcoidosis as well. So then, I, then finally we started doing that. And you have to tick a certain amount of boxes with a disease like that before they can start treatment for it because the treatment's so severe. And I um, went to the doctor one day and I was in a really bad way. I, 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 if I didn't have two little girls at home still at that stage, I would have blown my fucking head off. I, I just didn't want to be alive anymore. The pain was so bad. So I went um, to my doctor this day and Michelle came with me because she had to drive me here. I couldn't drive. And um, I, I just wanted help. I just needed some, something to help the, how bad I, how sick I was. Mm. And I said to her, I said, if you don't give me some help today, mm. some form of medication to ease the pain and suffering I'm going through, I'm going to go out, leave the doctor's surgery. I'm going to buy the biggest bag of fucking cocaine I can. I'm just going to fucking self-medicate because I know that's going to make me feel better. And she laughed and Michelle looked at her and said, he's not fucking joking. 
So she rang this Professor Cook at the psychodosis clinic and said, told him my situation, and, yeah. and he and he then prescribed me with a Category 1 drug that she couldn't yeah. to help with my situation. But I still wasn't diagnosed. Mm. And, and so then the next thing was they did a PET scan and my body just lit up like a fucking Christmas tree. Like it was Holy fucking everywhere. Shit. And then... And then they did a went into my heart and took a piece of uh, meat off the side of my heart because that's where they could see some of the infection. And that came back with granuloma, which is a psychodosis. So I'm like thinking, fucking great, finally I've got you know a um, proper diagnosis. And they said, no, first before we can count that as a diagnosis, we have to discount TB mm. because that can also be TB. And I said, well, how long does that take? And they said, it takes three to four weeks for us to grow the culture. And I'm like, fuck's sake. Everyone knew, they all knew I had psychodosis, but they wouldn't, they couldn't fucking yeah. sign off on it. Yeah. Then I, they sent me to see an, a ophthalmologist to see if I, it was in my eyes and it was in my eyes. And as soon as it was in my eyes, then they, they had enough evidence to say you've got psychodosis. And they started me on a bunch of different drugs and had me on, what's that fucking stuff called? Like painkillers? No, no, that? it's um, health guys take it. Oh, steroids. Steroids, steroids, yeah. <laughs> they put me on fucking steroids and yeah. the steroids were fucked. They're like, it was yeah. knocking me around really bad. And in two weeks, hmm. I'd gone from never having a problem with my sugar, sugar levels to being in the diabetic range. Well, after steroids? Yeah, after steroids. Wow. So it impacted your body that much. It just that, turned, turned yeah. like flipped it on, its, on yeah. its head. So I just stopped taking them. And I said to my doctor, I'm not going to take them. I said, I don't need to be a fucking diabetic as well as fucking everything else I've, that I've got going on. Hmm. And in the end, um, I go to the, to the psychodosis clinic in Canberra. And then they put me on this medication. And um, I take 3,000 milligrams every day. Hmm. But the problem with that medication is that it can increase the risk of many cancers. So I'm being monitored for that as well all the time now. Mm. So, But anyway, um, I, I describe it this way, that I'm, I've got 65% of my life back 95% of the time or 90% of the time. And the other 10% of the time is when I sort of have a, a flare-up or whatever. Like a relapse kind yeah. of thing. But, yeah, yeah I, still, I still don't have you know, my full life back. You know, I'm only 65% as, as good as I was before. Mm. How did you get involved in bikies? In the, did, you get, did, did that come through just on the other side of like in your, yeah, I read in your book? Did well, I've always, always, always had bikes, yep. always been involved in bikes and always liked to ride. And I'm not just a, I've got a bike in the shed guy. You know, yeah. There's, there's, there's plenty of bikes that have got a Harley in the shed. They're just fucking cock pullers. Yeah. So they want to say... I got a fucking Harley Davidson. Same as like lots of guys who are racing car drivers. Bob Jane used to call them garage cock pullers. Yeah, you know they just buy it so they can fucking say to their mate, "I got a racing car." You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the same with bikes. You know, you got guys with Harleys who ride them down to the fucking cafe. Yeah. Or yeah, they put ten bikes. They put three thousand k's on their bike every fucking two years. Yeah. So I've always, but I've always been a serious bike biker, and I ride all the time. Ride. Big distances. There was a period of my life when all I had was a bike. But I met John Stepanek through NASCAR. Mm. 
and and got involved with those guys, uh, you know, just as a trusted friend of those that those guys, and and been riding with those guys ever since. That was in 1991, and they're just a really good bunch of guys, mm. and and it's great to be able to go away and ride with them and spend time with like-minded guys who you can trust, guys who have got your back, guys who understand what being staunch is. Mm. You know, there's so many people now that say, oh, mate, I got you, mm. I fucking, but they don't. Yeah. They just like to fucking say it. Yeah. And that's 90% or 90 fucking 9% of civilians. Yeah. You know, they think they know, but they don't. You know, the guys like this... I can fucking call and they will be there. If I was in a fucking bind, they would sell their fucking house to get you out. You know, they would do anything they can. If you need them or need something, that they're there for you. They're, they're real. They're what, what mates are meant to be, mm. you know, and, and but 90% of your mates don't get that. They, mm. they say they do and they love fucking spruiking about it and mm. saying, you know, I'm there if you need me. I'm fucking do this and I'll do that. I got your fuck, but they haven't. It's just all fucking bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> but you know those guys do, it. and I still do it. I still I love to ride with those guys. I ride with them, you know, every chance I get. Yeah, you're originally going to ride down here. Yeah, we we're going. On, we we're going on a ride that week. Yeah, and uh, as it happened, they ended up cancelling too because of the floods. Yeah, so uh, it, it, it just the, wasn't meant to happen back the then. The ride well, didn't happen at all. Yeah. So I had to cancel because I got really, really fucking sick and and then the rain all came. So, yeah, so that it'll, it's, it'll be on at a later date. And mm. But, yeah, mate, those guys are, are the best the best friends that people could ever have. Yeah. Because they do. They're, they're staunch. They're, they're, they're fucking completely fucking trustworthy. Mm. They love their fucking wives. They respect their fucking wives and family mm. more than anyone else. Yeah. You know, these guys aren't, aren't fucking wankers who run around screwing around behind their wives, but they don't do that shit. Mm. You know, they, they fucking do. These guys do the right thing mm. by everyone, but society frowns upon them because they don't understand. Mm. You know, they're big guys with tattoos and fucking Mahali Davisons yeah. and they're, they're just bad guys. Yeah. But they're fucking not. They're, they're fucking, they're men. Yeah. They're what men are meant to be. Yeah. How'd you get your start in racing? Obviously, the podcast is about car racing. Yeah. But how'd you get your start in? How'd you start get it get it started? Right. Well, when I I was a big fan of dirt speedway. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I would go to Trailey every chance I could, or Liverpool, but mostly Trailey. Yep. And guys like Rodney Combs from America, Rocket Rodney Combs, and the No Hanky Panky Valvoline Yankees. You know, they would yeah. all come over and race the Australian team. And I loved it. They were my absolute fucking heroes. I just adored these guys. I looked up to them and loved watching them race. And Barry Graham, who I consider to be the greatest sedan driver Australia's ever produced. Yep. He drive any fucking thing. Hmm. And uh, David House was the local guy. He won two Australian titles. He was a Canberra guy. He was my local Hero. What year was this? Eighty two. Was this when this, you got started? Well, I started eighty three. March eighty three was my okay. first race. Yeah. So what happened was I was a bit of a lout, or not a bit of a lout. I was a full blown fucking lout, mm. and had fast cars and on the road, but I had no ambition to race. I hadn't even thought about racing. I was mm. just enjoyed being a hood. 
And my mates was, they all thought I could really drive. So they would say, you know, let's go, go with Southie for, so we'd go out dirt roads and get sideways and drive fast. And they always wanted me to go and do stupid things. Like I would get in my Falcon, 351 Falcon and come up behind semi-trailers and push, push my bumper go up against the back of their trailer. Yeah. Doing a hundred kilometers an hour and spin the fucking back wheels with guys <laughs> in the car, you know? And, and yeah, you know, so we do all these stupid things. And your coppers chased me to, I had a big car chase to Canberra mm. where the police chased me all the way to Canberra and got arrested and thrown in jail and all sorts of stuff like that had happened. Mm. And one day my mate, who's, you know, the best, my best mate I've ever had, you know, local guy, Peter, he also left school early to become a mechanic. Pete Masters. Peter Masters, yeah. Yep. He, he was building a stock car to race in the local Docker, ACT, New South Wales board. And one day he just said to me, do you want to drive my car at the meetings in, in another class? He was in a racing in 1500s and he wanted me to race it in series three production. And um, I said, yeah, right. But I, I didn't really understand why he wanted me to drive his racing car. It made no sense to me. Like he was building this car and putting all this money and effort into building this really good car. Yeah. And he's asking me to drive it. Yeah, at that time you were just into bikes and stuff, weren't you? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah I had motorbikes and, and yeah. just fast street cars. Yeah. But anyway, I no one's ever confirmed this to me, but I I really have a strong feeling that one of the local coppers, a guy called John Campbell, who was a guy who chased me to Canberra, as a part of the the as a part of the Yas. Higher Patrol guys training, mm. my car chase was a part of their training. Really? Yeah. <laughs> How'd you not find that out? The coppers told me. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So, so this John Campbell who chased me, who, yep. we, who I ended up being really good friends with, he, I think he said to Peter, you need to help your mate out. Yep. You need to do something and get him off the fucking road before he fucks up. Mm. So I think that's what happened. Mm. Peter won't, he's still 30 fucking, 40 years later, he won't fucking confirm that's what happened. But I yeah. think that's what happened because I can't think of any other reason why he wanted me to drive his car. Yep. So it was a, this was a really important part of my life, mm. like a really important part of my life. I had just broken up with my girlfriend who I'd been with for quite some time uh, since I was 17. Now I was 20. And I ju and then I turned 21 in February. But at on New Year's Eve, I met another girl and ended up falling madly in love with her and leaving my girlfriend. So I had a new girlfriend. I was going to start racing cars, and it was just really good time. Mm. So we went. My first race was at Fairburn Raceway in Canberra Speedway. Myself, Peter Masters, his wife Tracy, um, who I've got, who's got a love hate relationship with me. She loves me, but she fucking hates my behaviour, and is the only one who always pulls me in a fucking line. Yeah, but that's why you're called the wild thing, though. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. yeah. So, and their their, their daughter Danielle, uh, who's the most be beautiful child I've ever met in my whole life. She's a grown woman now, but as a child, most of your friends' kids are just fucking snotty nosed pieces of shit. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was just adorable. Her whole life. My mate Robbie, mm -hmm. his girlfriend at the time, Bronwyn, and my new girlfriend. So we all went to my first race. It was a 12-car field 
and I had to start at the back mm. because I was a rookie. It was my first race. So I'm driving a Datsun 1200 that's mm. like got a modified 1500 engine in it, twin Webers, fairly a lot of work done to it. Mm. So it went fairly well. And I won the first heat, passed everybody. And they're all driving Tiranas, um, six cylinder Tiranas with, you know, triple Webers or triple SUs and all that sort of stuff, mm. all pretty hotted up cars. Yeah. Passed them all, round the outside, won the first, first race. And I'm sort of, wow. It's fucking great. And everyone's like, Peter's like, fuck, that's fucking great. <laughs> Went out again, second heat, won the second heat off the back again, yeah. passed everyone. Third heat, won, passed everyone, won again. And won it easy, just fucking kicked their asses. Yeah. For the feature, mm. there's a guy who's a local racer, been around for years, still around now. His name's Terry Robbie. He changed cars for the feature. He went and borrowed a super sedan off another guy for the feature. Did anyone know about this in the pits, though? Yeah. 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 He would, he'd come second to me in every race. And I, Was it the same number on the car, though? Like that? No, he no, just changed cars. Changed cars. Yeah. yeah, okay. So he goes out. Um, he, he'd been starting on the front row mm. of every race, and he did in this race, too. And I passed everyone except him yep. for the feature. But being my first race in Speedway, I didn't know the rules. I just assumed that by winning three fucking heats, and coming second in the last race, I'd be, I was a winner. I'd won the fucking day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they we go up to collect our trophies and they give the third place trophy to fucking whoever that was. And then they mm. go second place, Tony South. And I'm like, what the fuck? Second mm. place? How the fuck am I second? So I go up and get it. And then they give the fucking first place to Terry because he'd won the feature race. Yeah. So, so you thought it was for outright, but you were just doing the heats and you'd think you'd won the whole thing because you've won the heats. Yeah. 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 Because I'd won three out of four races. Yeah. Makes sense. Anyway, so I learned then that, that you know, but anyway, Terry, Terry won. If you had a, if you had a change cars, you wouldn't have. Anyway, it was my first race and it was, I actually collapsed standing there waiting for my trophy. I was so overwhelmed by the whole day and I had this beautiful new girl in my life. I was ha- the happiest I'd been for years, and I just won. Do you remember your girlfriend's name at the time? Oh, yeah, I do, but I don't yeah. want oh, okay. to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, it, was, it was fantastic. And, um, and then the next ra- race meeting, we went to a place called Woodstock, mm. another speedway out in New South Wales near Cowra, and I won there again. I, but I, I won the feature there, won the back, day. Back then, was there lots of like, big crowds back then? Oh, yes. But, yeah. like Dirt track racing in the, in the bush in the 80s was great. Yeah. Like, it was fucking great. There was like tracks everywhere and and there was lots of cars and people involved and people were engineering incredibly good fast cars Mm. and then we came to yas yas speedway for the first time and terry robbie was there Mm. and the guy that had beaten me yeah anyway i um with one car or two cars this time (laughs) (laughs) he was in the in in his fast car and i was coming under the underneath him the yas where the pit straight is there's like a a wooden wall, or mm. there was, and he had in those days you could run like tires that wide out, outside your guards. So I purposely eight tires are held on much better than four. Mm. So I just used leaned on his car, and I pushed him over onto the wall, and his tire went up the wall and tipped him fucking over, <laughs> and I won the won the race. Uh. Now Warwick Stansfield, rest in peace. He only just died recently. Mm was one of the most respected people in the Yas community and certainly a huge guy in local racing. He was the clerk of the course. So he called me over and he said, I'm going to park you for the rest of the day. To you? Yeah. 
he said, I know you did that on purpose. And then he said, but he had it coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so I, I had a lot of success in driving Peter's car. Mm. And then I decided to buy, buy my first car and I bought a, a car that had just won the 1500 series championship. But I couldn't afford to buy it with the engine that it had won with. So I bought it with just a modified engine, but not the really good one. It was a stupid move because the car just wasn't any good. And, yeah. I, and I had no success in it at all. Yeah. I think. Do you remember the car, like what car it was and the, what it, was what it a, looked like? It was a boxy square hmm. Fiat 124, I think. And Did uh, you run number 17 back then or just any no, number? No, no, no. I'll get to, I'll, uh, that's actually a a story with a 17 yeah but i um I, I think i only ever won one race in that car and i sold it to a friend and then i built a car an open car and th- in those days you could build open cars and basically that's what it was mm. you could do whatever you fucking wanted yep. this was a 180b triple s with a trx two liter supercharged fuel injected and it was a v8 killer and I took me race meaning after race meaning after race meaning it would just fuck up with throw belts off. It would just, not, the injection wouldn't work. I think I built a dozen different injection manifolds on different angles to try and get it to work. And then when it did work, I just fucking killed it. Yeah. Just, did you have much crew back then around you or not? No, really? it was just whoever we'd get. Like yeah. most of us would just go to the races with yourself. by yourself sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Or with your girlfriend, or with a, a mate, or mm-hmm. and but people there would help you anyway. Mm. You know, everyone helped each other out. Yeah. That's the really good thing about dirt racing is it's such a huge family. And um, so yeah, that happened, and I raced that car. And the next thing was I really felt I had a good ass in a car. Mm. I really felt that I could, I had skills to develop, and I wanted to race speedway at the top end of town mm. i wanted to race against david house and john pine and barry graham and all those guys this is before nascar had come in yeah. oh yeah yeah, yeah 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 okay and that's that's what i wanted to do i really wanted to to race a super sedan against mm. those guys my chance came at jazz in the board championships ACT New South Wales board championships and david house would come over to the to race at Yass, and all the women hated it because their their husbands would never win when Housie was there. So they would just whinge and about him being a trophy hunter. And but the best thing about Housie coming over and racing with us is it made us all step up our game because no one would, would drive as hard as they did if he wasn't there. You know, tro- tro- trophy presentation would come and the fucking all those guys women would fucking boo Housie. This guy was two times Australian champion. We we should have been. Well, I was grateful to fucking have him there. Anyway, so board championship, it's me on the inside pole, David House on the outside for the board championship in the open class. This was my fucking chance mm. to race my fucking hero, and I was so fucking excited. I didn't give a fuck about anything else that was going on in the world except that moment. I'm sitting yeah. there in my car and filled the engine with methanol. I didn't turn it off. I was sitting on the dummy grid waiting to go out and yeah. filled the motor with methanol. <laughs> so I ended up getting pushed off the grid yeah. and it didn't happen. So, um, yeah, so I, I then decided I want to buy a super stand, buy a really good super stand. So I looked around and one of the Australian champions had a car for sale 
and it was probably the best car in Australia at that time. It was mm. a lot of fucking money, and I was doing really well. I was doing the Parliament House thing, and mm. my missus, we had a, a home business, and everything was going well, and I was going to buy this car, and uh, then Bob started building the Thunderdome, and I went straight down to have a look at it. Now, I didn't actually envisage going to race NASCAR. Yeah. yeah. I... I was certainly interested in it and, mm. and thought it'd be great to do it. Yeah. But it wasn't. Were they televising NASCAR in Australia back then or not? Not as much as there is now. Like Daytona 500 was really, in, during the 80s, was the only race we got, got, yeah. got live. Yeah. Um, but so Bob's got this thing. So I went down and looked at the, looked at the track and then I, I was going down to all the meetings, every meeting I'd go. This guy, Pat Wormsley, my dad used to say, his nickname was Wall. My dad used to say that, World was full of Pat Worms. It would be a much better place to live in. This guy's he's a fucking really good guy and a real yeah. legend. He brought in a cutout from the Sydney Telegraph, and it was driver search, yep. NASCAR driver search, the George Elliott, Barry Graham, NASCAR. Yeah, yeah. And he said, "I thought you might like this." And I looked and I thought, "Oh yeah." So the next driver, the next race at Calder, I went down, and George was there, and they were putting on like a um, like a information mm. day, you know. So I went, and I it was two hundred and fifty bucks deposit. I didn't have any money, so I said to my cousin Mark, who was at the racetrack with me, and my cousin's husband Mark, I said, "Listen, mate, can you lend me the two hundred fifty bucks? I want to do this." He said, "Yeah, no worries. Sorry, he lent me two hundred fifty dollars." So it was like, so him and his wife Donna, my cousin, mm. were the f- actually the first people who invested in my NASCAR career. So they they gave me the money, and I signed up. I Came down to do the NASTRAC on my birthday in 1990, yeah. February 1990. Your life was a bit of a mess back then. Was it around then? Or was oh, it was. It was. And it was getting worse because my, my wife had decided she needed a boyfriend. And, and so things were really getting fucked up. And so I went down and because and, what had happened was the other girl I was seeing, everybody was against it because yeah. I'd been with my other girlfriend so long. They wanted me to be with her trying to get married because everyone was getting married in their early 20s. And this other chick was a couple of years younger than me. She was too young and blah, blah, blah. So we ended up breaking up because everyone wanted us to. Yeah, okay. And I ended up going back to my wife, who, who became my wife. So anyway, I, went, I go down to do the NASTRAC thing and Peter Masters, who's really sensible guy. Like the, He's someone who's got his head together. He's a very good businessman a, and a, even a better human. I took him with me so I wouldn't fuck up. So we go, and we go down the night before and we stay at the Keelor Motel right opposite the Keelor pub and we go over there for dinner. Now, Peter says, we won't go into the bar, we'll just go into the restaurant and we'll have a steak and a beer, go back to the hotel. I said, no worries. So we go to the, do that. And then he says to me, let's just go in the bar and have one beer. Right. That ended up being a fucking out of control. Loose fucking night. One beer was never one beer. It ended up being a thousand fucking beers yeah. and fucking drunk as ten men. And there's a whole fucking story about that night. I made a lifelong friend and a lifelong sponsor that night. Mm-hmm. Met that night, and my cousin was working there behind the bar, who was pretending that he was a Canadian fucking Mountie. He yep. was out here. It was and like I saw him like a hey Mick, and he like pretends he doesn't know me. This is my <laughs> first cousin, and he's got this Canadian accent. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? And he's like, who are you? And I'm, 
And and in the end, you know, I, I outed yeah. him because he turned up in Keelor pretending he was a Canadian mounting out here on holidays and got a job and was just fucking all the barmaids and having the time of his fucking life. <laughs> wow. And me just turning up at this random pub yeah. completely fucking outed him. So that was his last night that he didn't go back. So, yeah, that's uh, in my book when it comes, there's a big story about that night. Anyway, so what happens is we go back to the hotel, fucked, and all the other guys had arrived in the bus. George brought a whole busload down from Sydney. They were all in, the, in their rooms. In the morning, I wake up and I'm fucking rooted. We all meet. And the funny thing was that one of the guys in my group was the guy who had married my old girlfriend. He was yeah. a copper from Yass. Yeah, right. And they had their, it was either their send-off or their engagement party at the pub that I drank at, which is really fucking weird because they both knew I drank there. Yeah. He fucking hated me because, you know, I'd obviously chopped up his cook before he had and yeah. guys don't fucking like that shit, you know, little yeah, dick yeah. fucking syndrome. And, <laughs> and she knew I fucking drank there. So I'm like, why the fuck are you here? Anyway, so... She came in to see me in the bar and we had a bit of a moment and he was looking through the back back of the bar and saw me and mm. then I walk out there and he's like a bit of a ruckus started and wanted to have a go at me and then everyone pulled me away from him and he's like points at me like this and he goes he thinks he's fucking mad Max he goes yeah. I'll see you on the fucking road I'll <laughs> see you on the road you know yeah. like righto <laughs> so then we get down there and he's in this fucking group he's one of the guys that's doing nas track. Because he's a higher patrol copper, and yeah. I obviously thought he was a bit of a gun. Well, to actually be an NASCAR driver, like he's actually yeah, he was to... in, he was doing yeah, NASCAR, right, yeah. yeah, okay. And uh, as it turned out, which was really fucking funny, I love everyone knowing it. I came twenty seventh or 29th, not sure, but it was the top twenty five who went got through to the final. He came four hundred and seventy six, right, which is fucking great. I thought that was really good. <laughs> so, so I didn't get into the NASCAR final. And uh, Adam Pay ended up winning it. Mm. Uh, was Adam Pay win that year, or was it Steve Crossan? Anyway, mm. one of those guys won it. I think it was Adam Pay. So, um, but what happened was a few months later, I get a phone call, and my ex missus sings out. She's like, "Bob Jane's on the phone," and I'm, "What? Bob Jane was on the telephone," and I'm like, "Get fucked! <laughs> Why the fuck would Bob Jane call me? You know, yeah, I've, yeah. I don't know Bob Jane. And I obviously know who he is, yeah, but yeah. I don't know Bob Jane." And she's like. Really, Bob Jane. So yeah. I pick up the phone and I got to hear for the first time something that I heard a thousand fucking times after that. Hello, Bob Jane here. That's how he yeah. answered the phone always. And uh, he invited me down to look at a NASCAR. He wanted me to drive a car. He had a car for me. I didn't find out till many years later that what had happened was Barry Graham, who was a big part of the NASTRAC deal, him and George Elliott owned it, had actually fought for me to be in the top 25. Mm. He told me himself that he fought. Are you still mates with George Elliott? George Elliot, oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. He's, he's a great bloke. Oh, fuck yeah. He's fucking, <laughs> fucking character. Um, yeah. So back to Bob Jane. So yeah. Barry had fought for me to get me into the final 25. And he'd, he'd also, Bob had obviously asked, were there any guys that were you know, candidates to come and race? And Barry had you know, written me up to Bob. So Bob said, come down, I've got a car for you. So I drove straight to Melbourne the next day and got down there and he had a Michael Waltrip um, Country Time mm. number 30 Pontiac, complete car, ready to drive on the track. And he wanted $76,000 for it. And he said, 
I want you to buy this car. I want you to race in the next race, which was the Christmas Cup, and it was a million-dollar event. They don't have races like this these days. No. Anything. Yeah. And, well, our prize money then still not hasn't been matched 30 years later, or yeah. we were getting paid. And he said, I want you to buy this car. You can just pay it off through prize money. You know, take your season or two to pay it off, and you, you can just yours. Just go race. And it sounded really fucking tempting, but I didn't want it. I just bought a house for 90000 and mm. this guy's selling me a racing car for almost that, $76,000, and offering me to go on the tick for it. So I was a bit, like, shell-shocked at what to do. And, I, and so I can't remember whether it was there on the day or a phone call later I said to him that I, I didn't want to take his offer. And I explained to him the reasons why. And he said, listen, the Christmas Cup race in December is a million-dollar race. You'll get $17,500 to come last. He said, all you have to do... Don't put any tyres on it. Don't practice the fucking thing. Don't do anything except put some fuel in it. Go out on the racetrack. Start the race at the back of the field. Do one lap. Pull up. He said, just do a start and park. He said, you'll pick up $17,500 straight off the fucking bill. Now now you only owe me sixty grand. And, But still, I decided it wasn't what I wanted to do. I do regret that. It's, uh, you know, I admit uh, that I have regrets, and that's one because that probably would have been the best choice for me to make as far as getting a car. So when I found out more about what Bob was doing and how much we were getting paid, I put the super sedan idea on hold. Super sedan racing or late model racing or, or mm. grand national racing, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to race on dirt more than anything. That's that. Those, even though even though the NASCAR was in your face, you just still want to do dirt. Dirt, dirt was my love. I yeah. just that's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to do anything else. I wanted to race dirt, but finding money to race dirt at that level is impossible. You know, to get sponsors, you, you have to fund it all yourself. Where the NASCAR thing was television. It was on Channel Nine, wasn't it? What, what, we were on all of them. We we're on yeah. nine, ten, seven, seven, and SBS. We had to yeah. go on every one of them at different yeah. times. So with the money that was being offered, plus we had television, sponsorship was going to be easier. So I decided we're going to go into that for a little while because it'll pay for itself. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry so much about money. So I went to America. Uh, a guy called Doug Taylor, who I got introduced to me through George Elliott, built cars. He had a, a, uh, a business in um, Denver, Denver, North Carolina, yep. not Denver, Colorado. So we, he, for, so we went over to crew for him at Daytona for a guy in the Bush, Bush Series race mm. called Richard Lasseter. This it was a young guy who'd, who'd invented some board game and made a fucking fortune. Fortune off it, Decided yeah. to go... Bush racing, NASCAR racing. So he had had four or five cars, and we went to Daytona to crew for him. And so when we got to Daytona, we'd booked tickets to go from Daytona to Denver. Now Denver to me was fucking Colorado, the other side of America. Yeah, well, most like people from fucking Den- Daytona here to fucking Colorado up there. Yeah, yeah. Where really I was only going here. To, yeah. So I'd, we'd already booked tickets, and no one said anything to me. Hmm. You know, we just thought. Naturally, we're going there. So we go there, and we crewed for Richard at um, at the, that race, mm. and I had a fucking run in with fucking Dale Earnhardt. Now, obviously, Dale Earnhardt's a fucking a legend and a hero and all yeah, these fucking yeah. things, you know. And 
And people have so many different opinions. That, like, there's guys you get just, bombarded on the internet all the time. Oh, they fucking time. love him. They fucking like. You, you took out, took away all the races where he fucking punted some cunt off the fucking track to win. Yeah, he wouldn't have won fucking half as many races as he fucking did. Yeah, like he was just fucking pushed every cunt out of the road. He, yeah, like Dale Earnhardt would not survive racing dirt speedway in Australia. Yep. He would get the fucking shit punched out of him yep. so many fucking times that he would soon learn the lesson. You can't just fucking, like, but in America, like, this is really, this is a fact and it's really quite funny. They talk about, you know, guys fighting in, in NASCAR, you know, after races, you know, Kyle Busch or fucking Joey Logano or whoever's yeah, having yeah. fucking all these guys, Kevin Harvick. Brad, Brad Keselowski, all those guys. All those guys. Not one of them's ever thrown a punch. It's always fucking a slap or a fucking hair pull. The yeah. only guy that actually punched anybody was fucking Marcus Ambrose. Yeah. <laughs> he fucking punched Casey Mears. Yeah. Like, he's an Aussie. That's yeah. the only actual punch that's mm. ever been thrown. Yeah. He's fucking Marcus Ambrose. Mm. Yeah. He punched him and fucking gave yeah. him a fucking welter. So, Dale Earnhardt, the way he drove in America, he wouldn't have fucking done it here. He wouldn't mm. have lasted. Mm. He would have been fucking flogged. So, and all these guys carry on. But anyway, so... I'm working on Richard Lasseter's car for yeah. Doug Taylor. And in those days, they didn't have garages for the bush cars at Daytona. We just had lean-tos, you know, mm. all carports. And we're next to Dale Earnhardt, which I thought was pretty cool, you know, Dale mm. Earnhardt. Um, and he was working on his own car and all that yeah. sort of stuff. Old school racing back then. Yeah. yeah. This is 1991, yeah. Daytona 91. Was this when he was his yellow and blue car? No, like no, the it, was Wrangler? A, it was a black. Oh, the black one. Black okay. one, yeah. Yep. And, and like... He had, his bush car was the same as his cup, cup car, car. Yeah. but his bush car was owned by him, not yeah. by uh, not well, by Richard. Okay. Yep. It was owned by it was owned by. If you have a look on the entry list for the nineteen ninety one bush race, mm. it was actually owned by Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. And Dale Earnhardt Incorporated wasn't actually incorporated until like ninety something, so like late, later, five or six years later. But that on that that's who it's listed as who owned it. Anyway, he's changing the sway bar on his on the, the bush car. And he saw me and he sung out to me and he said, mate, can you, I wouldn't have said mate, whatever yeah. he would have said, pal. Pal, yeah. Can you, um, could you pass me, have you got a rubber hammer or a mallet? Mm. You could pass me to knock out the sway bar. Mm. I went, no worries. I went out of the toolbox, grabbed him a rubber mallet, handed to him and he knocked the sway bar out, passed it back. No worries. The next day, or because in those days, even in Australia when we were racing, we used to get to the track on Monday. Yeah. We were there for the whole fucking week. So... Next day or whatever, I'm doing something, and I asked him to pass me something, mm. only something small, and he said to me, you haven't got your fucking own gear, you shouldn't fucking be here. Yeah, really? Yeah. Wow. I thought, you fucking piece of shit. You yeah. know? And that happened to me, exactly the fucking same thing happened to me four or five years later at Calder when a circuit racing guy who'd been also been racing Oscar came to NASCAR, and he came to his first race, and it wasn't Bradley. He came to his first race in NASCAR and was I was this side in the garage and he was there was a wall and he was in the next set of yeah. double garages. And they'd forgotten the power connection, the, 20, the 240 volt power connection for his scales. Mm. So he came in and asked me, could he borrow my scales? And of course, I said, yeah, no worries. Here's my scales. So he used my scales, weighed his fucking car, did it all. Going back, no worries, thanks, that's all good. Next fucking race meeting, someone ran over my uh, wheelbase gauge. 
and bent it. So I asked him if I could borrow his wheelbase gauge. Yep. He said the fucking same thing to me that Ernard said to me. Yeah, in America. In, in 1990. If yeah. you haven't got your own fucking gear, mate, you shouldn't fucking be here. Didn't you get, didn't you get arrested in America? Yeah, for... um. For, uh, Before we go back to Australia, but yeah, yeah. we didn't finish the American story off. For, <laughs> I was in a car park where me and my mate were in a Pontiac uh, Grand Prix hire car. And it was, was no, it wasn't. It was an Oldsmobile Cutlass um, Supreme. And their front wheel drive is V6 front wheel drive. So I've got the handbrake on and I'm driving around the car park with the back wheels dragging and mm. doing fucking donuts in the car park of this huge shopping centre. The police car fucking spotted me and came over. And pulled me up, and he, I get out of the car, and he's like, "Fucking pull the fucking gun on me, get back in the car." And then my then my mate gets out of the car, and he's mm. like, "Fucking got the gun on him, get back in the car." You know, I'm like, yeah. "Fuck me, this is serious," you yeah, know. Yeah. So he comes up and he and he gets me out of the car, and we walk around to the back of the car, and he says, "You know, he starts questioning me and can't understand a fucking word I'm saying." Yeah, because they can't understand a word I fucking say over there. They can't understand the Aussie accent, really. Mine. Your Aussie accent, yeah. Like, my friends don't seem to have a problem. Michelle Michelle just converts straight to Southern as soon as she gets there. They all fucking... <laughs> but no cunt can understand me. So he says to me, after finding out who I am and all this sort of stuff, he says, what are you doing in America? And I couldn't say I'm here buying a NASCAR because I only had a, a holiday visa. So I said... Holidays. He instantly fucking grabs me, spins me around, and goes, Hall and Ice. Hall and Ice, he thought I said. Oh, Hall Why would I oh, fucking say yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm fucking doing. Handcuffs me and sits me on the fucking ground with the handcuffs beside my car, yeah. and then gets my mate out, handcuffs him, puts him on the fucking ground too. Calls other fucking coppers to come. They fucking pull the car apart. And you're trying to explain yourself I'm on trying the ground. To fucking, I'm like, in the end, I'm like, vacation. Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yelling yeah. out, like, yeah, to make them understand. So after, like, an hour and a half of all this shit, finally get the message across that we're only, we're just fucking holidaying. So, yeah, it was quite funny, but, yeah, he thought I said haul and ice. And ice was only a new thing, you know, it was mm. only a really new thing. But, yeah, so it's, it, getting misunderstood was really funny. Yeah. And so we're, we're back in Daytona and mm. at the, we're at the pub and... I had a George Elliott uh, shirt on, real McCoy, yeah, bourbon um, jacket on, and this American guy comes over to me, a Southern guy who was obviously down there with NASCAR as well, says, "Do you know George?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, he's um, a friend of mine." He said, "Yeah, he's a friend of mine too, no George and blah blah blah." And this other guy comes over and he introduces me to him, and he says, um, "This is Tony. Uh, what do they call me? They they call they, could, they couldn't understand Tony Piney." Oh. Tiny Shaftwell. <laughs> that was your name in the States. T- Tiny Shaftwell. They all called me Tiny Shaftwell. And he says, uh, it's Tiny Shaftwell from Australia. And this guy goes, wow, you speak such good English. I go, what, the, what am I fucking meant to speak coming from Australia? You know, they, in, in, the, in those early days of us all going over there, the South, like the East Coast of America, knew very little about Australian. Because all Australians went to the West Coast. When we, when we, Australians went to America, they went to LA or yeah. San Francisco. No one went over there. So they only knew about poms and stuff that all, would all come to the. Were they, consi- were they considering you your pommy? Like, because of your accent? Did they what? think that you were. I don't know. The, I don't cat? know what they thought I was. Yeah. You know, in those days, it was really different. But they're really good people down there. Yeah. 
Do you enjoy American barbecue, by the way? I love that stuff. Oh, I, I do too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all so fucking sweet, oh. all that rubs and shit they put in. But um, one of the things that was a real eye-opener to me mm. was I was brought up in a family where race or colour was never a, a, a thing. Like my dad would never s- describe somebody by their race or their colour. Like it, he he treated everyone as a stick man. You know, everyone was the same. And I How it should be. And I grew up with not even not even thinking about mm. race or colour. It wasn't even something that I thought about. We went to this pool hall in Daytona, which is you know south. It's yeah. really it's not as civilized as people would like you to think it is. Still, and racism over there is still a fucking huge, huge fucking mm. problem. You've only got to have a look at all the people who just want to fucking rubbish Bubba Wallace for everything mm. he fucking does. He's been driving really great, by the way. Yeah, I know. He's doing a good job. He 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 is, and, and he needs, needs to be fucking, people need to just concentrate on his driving. So me and my mate go to this pool hall, and there's people everywhere, and there's like there's people watching and people playing, and we're playing pool, and my mate pulls some Sheila on and, goes off and we had the table, so I needed a partner. So there's a young guy there, and I said, mate, come over and you can partner me for the next game. And he's like, looks at me, because he, he's, a, he's, he's a dark boy. He's a mm. dark-skinned American. I don't, I don't like the African-American thing, because they're fucking not African-Americans. They, mm. they, don't, mm. they don't come from Africa. Yeah. They're fucking born there. They're Americans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he comes over, he's like, I can't play. And I mm. said, yes, you fucking can. Mm. And all these fucking rednecks, they've fucking got steam coming out from under their collars, right? But I've asked this guy to play pool with me, so then I get my fucking back up. And he's fucking playing pool with me. Yeah. I don't give a fuck what anyone says now. I've got the table. I won the fucking table. And he's my fucking partner. So luckily for me, mm. we lost the, that game because it probably would have ended up being a whole thing. In a bar fight. after. After the game, he comes over and he says to me, and he's like really grateful and says, you know, thank you so much. Mm. He says, I've been coming here for three or four years, and he said, I've never got to play. Mm. Fucking disgusting. Yeah. To be shut out like that, just because you look different to someone. And it fucking really makes my blood boil that Mm. that's still a thing over there, you know. And 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 they do it, they're still segregating people with their attempt to look like they're not. Because by saying the first black driver to win a race, that's fucking segregating. Mm. Why isn't he just a driver? Why isn't Bubba Wallace just yeah. was his first fucking race? Yeah, like his female first, or male to race. His fucking first won a fucking race. Why does it have to be? And they have Black American Month where they celebrate the achievements of people like Bubba. That's fucking segregating. What, what don't they get about that? Why don't they fucking just treat them exactly the same as everyone else? We're all mm. in this fucking melting pot together and just say, don't even, yeah. it's not a fucking thing. Yeah. His colour or his fucking race or mm. who he fucks or who he doesn't fuck, none of that is a thing. Yeah. He's a human. We're all fucking humans yeah. and just fucking treat each other like that. Mm. And it, that's that pisses me off. Fucking pisses me off that they... These fucking rednecks, and, and it's it's fucking rife still over there. You know that whole um, fucking stupid 
rebel flag that they yeah, wanted to fly yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in America. That would have been big when you went over there. Well, it's just, it's got such racist connotations to it that I'm glad Bubba stood up mm. and said that shouldn't be here. Mm. And I'm glad NASCAR had the balls to fucking do something about it because it shouldn't fucking be there because it is it has got racist connotations in America, you know? So that's good. Like NASCAR's in really good hands in America now because young Ben Kennedy is is basically running the show and he's a young guy. I'm not even sure if he's 30 yet, probably. Mm. He's an ex-truck racer. Yeah. Yeah. He's family. He's, yeah. He's Brian Francis' grandson. Yeah, okay. His mother is a France. Yeah, okay. So he raced for a few years in the trucks basically to have that background mm. to know what it's like to be a racer and then pulled up to pulled out to go into the office and now he's the f- going to be he, he's one of the bosses and mm. he's going to be the face of NASCAR moving forward and all this stuff that's happening having fucking rappers who I'm not into it but having that music you know rap music at the at the Coliseum event and having the Coliseum event and having the new car and all these things are all Ben Kennedy. You know, it's, he's a big part of what's happening to NASCAR. And it's good to see that a lot of these guys who are so against the car, the new car, now that they're seeing it race, are starting to come around. They still want to have a go about the one wheel nut thing, you know, and every time something happens. Those new cars are great, though. They are, but they're still a stock car. Mm. This is what they don't understand. They, they're still a fabricate, the sh- you know, like the the... the the way the chassis and the and the frame and everything's built, it's they're still a stock car. Yeah, there's only a couple of things I don't like about the new car: the floor mounted pedals, I, I I I don't like, and the rear diffuser. They're the two things that I don't personally like. But the rest of it, I think, is fucking great. I mean, it's they had, Cup hasn't had a new car since 1981. We're driving, been driving fucking that 1981 car, yeah, for years. Fucking nearly, it's over 40 fucking years. Yeah. Driving the same fucking car. Yeah. I mean, we've made changes to it. You know, we've had different. The CRT, the gens, yeah, the different but gens. But it's still the same car. Yeah. Still exactly the same car. We've been driving, same fucking chassis, same fucking rear end, same gearbox. Everything's the fucking same. So it's, it's, it was time for a new car. And, and they've done a great job of it. Yeah. So we'll go back to your, your Thunderdome days. Yeah. You you were talking, you know, we were talking off air many times before how you actually got screwed over big time by a bloke to, to buy one of your car. Well, was it your, fir- it was your first NASCAR, was it? Or, you know, you, you got sold a dodgy package. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't mm. get sold a dodgy package. Mm. I, I actually really appreciate that that deal because I looked at a few cars. I went to America and the car I was going to buy there off Doug Taylor when we went mm. back to his after the race meeting at Daytona, was mm. a a, thund- a current model Thunderbird, and it was fifty thousand US. And by the time I got it back to Australia, it was going to cost me just under a hundred grand. Okay, because Bob hadn't got the import tax dropped at that stage. Mm. So with transporting it and everything, so that sort of was blowing the budget. And so I had a look at a few cars. Robin Best had a car, an old car for sale, mm. but it was an old banjo car, and the and and banjo chassis. Didn't, didn't have very good longevity. They tended mm. to get a lot of flexion in them and they would crack in places and stuff. So I didn't really like it. It was a beautiful-looking car, but I didn't really like Wait, that. Wait, was there different chassis back then with um with the NASCARs, was there? But, oh, yeah. but different body shells, obviously. Was there different? So there was a Banjo chassis. What was the other ones? Hutchison Pagan was the big one and, yep. Lo- and Laughlin. Okay. Laughlin was like what everyone had later. 
So it was uh, Hutchison Pagan was what my car first car was, and Banjos. So there's Banjos, Hutchison Pagan, and then there was a couple of others. Mm-hmm. But they were, Banjo and Hutchison Pagan were the main ones. Hutchison Pagan were the the biggest, most people. Bob, all the cars Bob bought out from the states to have built here were Hutchison Pagan. He bought a shit ton of brand new Hutchison Pagan skin chassis, and then John Shepard and his team built the cars which was uh, pat purcell and keith leggett and other and T- tommy smith all those guys built all these cars to, for the australian market and one of those cars was what i ended up with now barry blake bought that car mm. in the really early days of mm. the thunderdome and um and raced it for a year or two and he had it for sale and i'd i'd been crewing for barry and i i was trying to fucking remember how it happened how i ended up crewing for barry Mm. Because he had an accident and the car ended up coming back to Canberra. There was some guy in Canberra and I ended up somehow getting the job of taking it to mm. the Gold Coast for him for the Gold Coast race, first yeah. IndyCar Grand Prix. So the car was in Canberra and I trailered it up there. Me and another mate of mine took it up there for him. Mm. I don't know how it happened, but he had, I had a lot of trust in a couple of guys he'd never fucking even met mm. you know, at that stage. So I took it up, ended up crewing for Barry and helping him and the so then we got to talking about his old car, mm. and he offered to do me a deal where I could pay it off uh, over the season uh, out of prize money. And I'm really fucking grateful because it actually took me three seasons to pay it off. And but but Barry and Cindy, his wife, worked with me and allowed me to do that. But the car wasn't what I I bought it as a roller, and basically it just didn't have was meant to just need an engine and gearbox but it, it needed so much more than that you know the, mm. the screen that was in it was a glass screen and, and they'd gone to lexan so i had to put all new all new lexan throughout the car mm. it didn't have a diff center it didn't have a fuel cell it didn't it didn't have any fucking thing so it needed a lot of work so we took it back to yes uh to my mate peter master's workshop and went to went to town building a race car and this is when a lot of the disappointment starts for me with local support. Because guys who I'd raced with and guys who were local in the racing community would be interested in a real fucking NASCAR being in town. See a fucking NASCAR, you'd go and look at it. But because it was fucking mine, mm. one of, I'm one of them, mm. they hate to see anyone achieving beyond what they... they so one of them in particular was a guy who I knew really well. I used to support his business. And I saw him driving up the street and he saw the car parked in front of my mate Peter's workshop. Yep. And he turned away so he didn't look at it, didn't, yep. want, didn't want to appear interested. And that's still the case. Like these guys still don't want to appear interested in anyone having success beyond what we did mm. in local speedway. You know, and it's sad that they can't embrace other people. Like, I'm the only other guy. There's only two of us have had success on a national scale out of Yas that raced locally. Mm. An old guy, an old guy called Ron Marshall, mm-hmm. who raced with Bob Jane. Yep, uh, and and myself. You know, we went on, and and both of us had national success. So mm. they should be embraced, mm. but not not ignored. Mm. And they do. They 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 they'd rather ignore it than. Mm. Than, um, than pat you on the back. But yeah, so we went to building that car. I bought an engine off Bob. Uh, it was a Junior Johnson 23-degree uh, engine that everyone was racing at that time. And I bought a gearbox off Bob. 
I sent the engine to a guy called Dave Handley in Sydney, who's an engine builder who built Fred Series engines. Yep. And he also built um, race engines for big boats, mm. like twin turbo, fuel injected, bloody, yeah. you know, those huge fucking big block motors. So he built my engine. Bob Jane put my engine on the tick for me. Mm -hmm. I could just pay him off. And so, yeah, so we went to doing all that. And in the end, mm. when we arrived at the racetrack for our first race meeting, my car had cost me the 96 grand I would have spent buying the, yeah. the car off Doug, Doug Taylor. Yeah. And $20,000 more than I would have if I had bought the car off Bob. So not knowing what, what you know, what, what I'd, Mm. Needed to know at the time, but arriving at Calder and driving my, I got loaned a truck mm. to take it down on, and driving down to, I hadn't thought about it. Mm. I hadn't thought because I'd driven a few car, other people's cars, not in mm. races, but I'd driven other NASCARs on the track. Getting there and driving down with my own car and my all my gear and everything, and then all of a sudden I'm on the Calder Highway and I'm driving towards, and all of a sudden the Thunderdome come into view, and I looked in the mirror and saw. My own NASCAR stock car on the, and I'm like, fuck. This is real. This is, we're doing this. This yeah. is fucking real, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was so exciting. But we got to the track. We had three wheels, three wheels that we could race on. Um, we bought a set of jack stands from Kmart. Peter Masters had put a toolbox together for me. Warren Edgerton, a mate of mine who I worked with in Canberra, made me my fuel cans, and everyone else just lent me stuff. The Laws Brothers. Put a headrest on my seat because my seat didn't have a headrest, and everyone down there just Robin Best gave me tires. Everyone just did whatever they had to to get the car ready. Went out for practice. I don't think we got to practice till Wednesday, maybe Tuesday, mm. Wednesday. Car was fucking terrible. It was I was doing thirty-two second laps, and the lap record at stage that stage was twenty-eight six, and just it was just awful. And uh, Fred Siri just turned up out of the blue and started shouting abuse at my guys. And Peter Masters come over and he said, I'm going to tell this old cunt to fuck off. I said, no, no, don't do fuck off. I said, just bite your fucking tongue and do whatever he fucking says. So Fred just yelled abuse at my guys for an hour to change this and change that and change whatever. And and um, the next practice session went out and we we were, we weren't in the 29s, but we were like just the really low 30s. Mm. So it was, we're getting respectable then. Yeah. So then Fred's, Fred, <laughs> ah, rest in peace, Fred is such a character. He gave me my driving advice. Mm. He's telling me how to do a lap. And he's, first of all, well, the first bit was really good. He said, go out there and run around doing 2,000 revs, do 10 laps, then do 10 at mm. 3,000, then 10 at 4,000, and just bring your revs up. And he, and he said, it's really tedious. And it'll really fucking annoy you, but you'll get to know the track. So I did what he said, and then he he said, "When now we're now we're up to speed. This is how you drive drive a fast lap." So when you're going down the back straight, when you you come into turn three to go, and that before you go around to turn four, he said, "There's a big bump you'll hit," and he said, "You you still got your foot in the gas." He mm. said, "If you have to put your left foot on top of your right foot mm. to hold the fucking." your foot down fucking hard. He said, when you fucking hit that bump, the car's going to come off the fucking ground. He said, then you button off, and then when it hits the ground, he said, you're back into it, and you fucking dirt track it right around that fucking corner. I'm like, the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, was so. the reason it was going slow is because it's wheel spinning as it hits the ground. Is that what is that what he's trying to say? I don't know oh, what yeah. he's trying to tell me. But anyway, that we didn't yeah. do that. So we went out. And we qualified uh, towards the back, maybe fourth from the back. It was a pretty good field for our first race, and it was actually the biggest crowd NASCAR in Australia ever had. We had uh, fifty six thousand people for the for the race, and over thirty on Saturday just for qualifying and practice. So it was fucking huge, and qualifying. I, I drew pill number one. So I was the first guy on the track for qualifying. And to be seeing 30,000 people in the crowd for qualifying and you've got to go out there first, it's like, mm. how could this fucking happen? How could I draw? So yeah. I was actually on pole for a moment. Yeah. And um, so we went out, I, I did the qualifying, and then the race started. And when the race started, I passed three or four cars in the first couple of laps. We're going really well. Uh, Rodney Combs lapped me. And then a little while later, Peter Masters got on the radio and he said, Rodney's coming. And mm. I went, I know he's fucking coming because mm. he lapped me again. Yeah. But um, we, we, we did really, really fucking well. We ended up finished the race in seventh position. And Were they 500 th- miles back then in, in Osnesco or 200? Or 250 three? laps that race okay. was. Okay, yeah. So it, it took, the race Two, is a mile. The yeah. track's a mile long. So I did. Um, we did finish the race, and I, I, there was a big crash just right towards the end. Took out uh, Charlie and Max and mm. Tim and a few others. So I finished seventh. Caller Park's timing had me at seventh. Tracy, Peter's wife, her she was our official timer. She had me at seventh. We were fucking wrapped. Top yeah. ten, first fucking race. Then when the official results come out, somehow I was back to twelfth. I don't know how, and I don't, I don't know what. And even then, you know, Peter said, you know, you've got to you know, complain or whatever. I said, no, I don't, I don't want to. I'm so fucking excited. We had such a fucking great day. I don't give a fuck about, I don't want to spoil it by starting an issue about where mm. we finished. So we just took the 12th and, and that was it. So officially it was 12th, but we did actually finish 7th. Um, but it was an incredible, mm. incredible way to start. See, in those days, we all had the same equipment. Mm. Everyone had... In the Chevs had twenty three degree mm. heads. Uh, we all ran the same. Had some yeah. of the cars were front steer cars, and that stage mine mine was a rear steer, but they were still rear steer cars driving. Mm. Were you all running on Goodyear's or Hoosiers back then? No, or was good, it both? Goodyear, but good they year. were they were bias ply tires. Yeah, okay. So they grew. Mm. So you you know we'd all get our tires and pump them up and lay them in the sun and, mm. and then measure them and try and, and then put the biggest one where we wanted the biggest one on the car and yeah. It wasn't until two years later that we went to the two radials, which really made things a lot easier because radials don't grow. Mm. You can't stretch them. So we all what, what you had when you first measured that tire, when you blew it up, that's what it was. It wasn't going to change. So that was a big change. That was a big change in NASCAR in Australia when we went to radials. We, um, they gave us a choice at the first race meeting. We didn't have to change the radials if we didn't want it. We could still run the bias by tyres. But everyone was a second faster mm. straight away. And George Elliott turned up. The first car to do a 27-second lap was Doug Taylor, the guy I went to the States yep. to see. Doug Taylor was driving for Ian Thomas, and he had a Pontiac Grand Prix that he'd built for Ian, and he went out and he did a 27-second lap. It was the first one that was ever done. And then George went out and did a 27, and Rob went out and did a 27. And George had this fucking nose on the front of his car. It looked like a, you know, old tr- yeah. trains in America with the big nose of yep. Chuck Sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, I remember those nice cars. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, they made him cut it off and yeah. fix it. 
But, yeah, it was pretty funny. It was, yeah. it was very inventive, but he was never going to get away with it. Yeah. But, you know, that was George. But George, George's cars were... He went on Kerry Ann Kennelly's. Oh, drove, yeah, he drove on yeah. there. And he's a he's a really good promotion haul, you know. He's yeah. very good at promotion, very good at prom- – but it's not just for him. Like, he's promoting for everybody, you know. Mm. He was – guys like George were really important. Yeah. People like himself, George, Robin Best, Ian Thomas, those guys who brought money into the sport, mm. money and cars. You know, those guys were really important to the sport and we and they deserve a lot of credit for helping it because it was the demise of those guys that ultimately led to the sport ending because the sport had changed a lot. After 95, when we lost the NASCAR sanctioning, things started to change. We had a lot, of, a lot more circuit races coming in. And I don't, like, it's not their fault, but they, they bring a different attitude racing than what dirt track races have what we needed to make nascar continue to grow was brooke tatnell and the all big sprint car guys young guys yeah. and some of the older guys too we needed th- those dirt guys to, more mm. of them to come into the sport we already had barry graham we had yeah max dumsey john sydney that, that team back then that was essentially the triple eight of of nascar wasn't it in australia they what, were dominating what does that mean they were Oh, triple eight Red Bull racing in supercars. Oh, they dominate okay. in supercars. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, well, yeah. And, but it was, you know, Max was obviously very good. Mm. But but John bringing Barry in mm. was the catalyst. Yeah. Because Barry knew everything about those cars mm. and was, the, was, the, was an incredible driver as well. Mm. So him coming into that team was, was what made the whole Max and Barry thing Mm. And John's know-how too. You know, mm. John's know-how on how to build a car and build an engine and his professionalism also. You know, that whole, it all came together. It was lightning in a bottle getting mm. those three people together that, that really worked. Max was really funny. In the early days, he had a, a, a Red Pontiac Grand Prix uh, sponsored by Pizza Hut. Yeah, okay. And uh, he was, we started at the same time. Mm. So he was in a garage above me. And he came into my garage and he said, you got a minute? I said, yeah. So he comes and go in and he goes, what do you do with your leg? And I'm like, what? And he goes, what do you do with your leg? Mm. I said, what, what leg? What are you talking about? He says, come here. So we go into it and he gets in his car and he's like, my leg mm. keeps hitting the steering column. Like when I go into the corner, yeah, okay. the G-force, I keep smashing my leg into the steering column. I said, I don't fucking know, Max, because I don't – I, I'm only new here too, but it doesn't it has, doesn't happen to me. Mm. Anyway, later that day or the next day, he says, "Come here, come here." So I, I go into Max's shed, and yeah. John's built him an aluminium bracket that wraps around the steering column mm. with another aluminium cup mm. with all foam padding for Max's leg to sit in. He had that the whole time he raced. Yeah, he's the only only person that ever had it. But it was yeah. What do you do with your leg? I thought it was really funny. Yeah. Before we we'll end part one with um. So we've got a two-part series going on here. We'll end with, like, Bob Jane. How influential was he on your racing career, oh, just the whole NASCAR thing? He was the best because he – he my first race ended hmm. with – Bob used to come around the garage and go and visit everybody after the race. And he would, you know, just ask – anyway, after my first race, 
He walked into my garage, him and Larry, his wife at the time, mm. and he grabbed me and he started shaking me. Yeah. And he's like, what do you fucking reckon now? You know? Because yeah, yeah. he was built like a fucking brick shit house, solid as a fucking rock. And he, and I, and I just immediately grabbed him by the fucking ears and pulled him in and gave him the biggest fucking most passionate kiss on the lips yep. you've ever seen a man <laughs> giving on a man. And his wife, Lorie's just her eyes are popping out of her head, you know. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Bob just looked at me. Yeah. But it was just such a fucking great moment. And Bob, he loaned me money t- to start. Mm. And I remember he is such an imposing man. Like he fills the fucking room. Mm. Wherever he he's in a room, he fills the fucking room. And... I remember always being so fucking intimidated by him. If I had to go and have a meeting with him, I had to go and see him. I'd always be really intimidated by him. So one day I needed to get get past it, get past feeling intimidated by him because yeah. I really liked him. So he used to go upstairs and he had a girl sitting outside his office on a desk and you would see her and you would sit there on a chair and then she would send you in. See, and Bob was sitting behind his massive fucking big desk, you know, yeah, with all the Bob Jane stuff, you know, yeah. all his memorabilia and trophies and in his office, and his office was huge. Mm. So was I, it in the centre of Melbourne? His, no, this, this is at Calder. Oh, it's up, at Calder. Top, top, oh, okay. Yeah, up, yeah, yeah, yeah. Top stair, upstairs in Calder at, the, at Calder Park. So I go, this, this day I'll go, I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna ambush the old cunt. I'm going to go up there and wait for him. So I snuck into his office before she got there and I yeah. sat at his desk. Now, I always tell people that I had my feet on his desk when he came in. Now, I don't know if I did or not. I probably didn't, but yeah. it's a better story to say that I did. And Bob walked in and saw me sitting at his desk and he, and he, and he just looked at me and he smiled and he said, get the fuck out from behind my desk. <laughs> So from that moment on, yep. we were mates. Yep. We got on like a house of fire, and I think that he just got respect for me that day because I did that. But I remember we went to race at Indy this uh, the second time. And uh, actually, I, this is a good story. I'll tell you this in this finishes off. Mm. We, we got there, and there's a guy in Melbourne who's a really hugely successful businessman who owns a massive transport business and he gave me a job part-time working at his transport place and I was just I was running shuttles around Melbourne for him and he he part owned or or I think it was the majority owner of one NASCAR team so he said to me are you racing at Indy and I said yes he said well listen if you want if you want to load up our car you can put your car in the truck too and if you go with the driver, we'll take your car up for you. This is fucking great because normally when we did this sort of thing, what we would do, we would pallet up all of our equipment mm-hmm. and send it by transport mm-hmm. and then tow the car up. So this way everything was going to go and I was going to also get a lift mm-hmm. by going in the truck. So we go up there and the truck driver was loose and I was loose. So we get there and we end up going out mm-hmm. on the town and getting fucked up, and he threw a glass across the table, and it bounced and hit a girl in the head. Yeah, wow. Didn't didn't hurt her. Yeah, but still, it was a really fucking stupid thing to do. But we were on the gear, full full tilt. 
we hadn't slept. We've been, you know, using nose candy all the way up, yeah. fucking in the truck, and we were how partying. many days? How many days were you awake on? Well, from when we left to come up and yeah. dro- drove from Melbourne, and we didn't sleep at all. And then we went out that night, and the next, so we get, we get. I said to the bouncer, I said, "Listen, mate, I'll, I'll take him out." We get to the front door, and the bouncer just fucking. He was a huge, huge fucking New Zealand guy. Just punches him, just fucking king hits him in the back of the fucking head. He deserved it. But it just wasn't the right thing to do. So I lined this fucking, this enormous fucking guy up and I hit him on the point of the nose with every fuck. I know it fucking hurt him because mm. I hit this big cunt as fucking hard as I could. That's the last thing I remember because obviously I got fucking flogging. But I'm, I'm in, then I'm in the back of a, some sort of van mm. and I'm bouncing around in a fucking van and I'm like, well, this isn't a fucking ambulance, and I'm in the paddy yeah. wagon. Well, the coppers have fucking arrested me. I've got tooth through my fucking lip, covered in oh. fucking blood. Holy shit! I've had the shit beaten out of me. Yeah, they take me to the Southport lockup and put yeah. me in the fucking lockup. I mean, and there's a cunt in the lockup with me in the morning, and I've got a drivers meeting at nine o'clock, mm. and I've got to be at the fucking drivers meeting for the for the first um, practice session of the NASCAR. So. We don't, I'm like, get, we don't want to get too far into this part because we want to tell them part two. Yeah, yeah, I know, but I just yeah. want to tell this story. Yeah. So I, I'm i trying to get out, but I just can't, wouldn't shut up. Yeah. He's fucking yelling at the coppers. So I shut him up. Yeah. Next minute the coppers come and they get me and they go, you're out. I'm like, oh, okay. Bob's there. Mm. Bob's fucking bailing me out of fucking jail. Yeah, right. Bob Jane Bob you, bailed you out of jail. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So he's there and I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so I go out and we get in his car and I get in the passenger side and I just go to open my fucking mouth and Bob goes, don't say a fucking word. We go, and we go back down to the racetrack yep. and I want to go home. I want to go to my motel because I'm fucking... Got, covered oh, in blood oh, and all yeah. sorts of shit. And I said, Bob, he goes, you're fucking coming now. So we go in and Bob, I walk in with Bob past... Every fucking Oz car and NASCAR driver and crew chief. Yep. And Bob's got me like, and he goes, sit fucking right there. Yep. And sits me at the front yep. on a chair right in front of this fucking stage. <laughs> like a I've, principal type of thing. I've never felt so much in view in my whole fucking life. Mm. I was, yeah. And it was, yeah, it was really fucking funny. Did you consider him, we'll wind up part one here, but did you consider him as like a father figure to you or what was the, what was Just the a fucking mentor and someone who I admired and hugely respected. Yep. He was just a, a great guy. And I've got lots of fucking stories we can talk about in part two about Bob, but he was just a really good guy. And even in his fucking seventies, he would take out the back of the shed and fucking clog you. Yeah. You know, he, he's not someone you would ever say to, you know, want to have a go hmm. because he would have a fucking go. Yeah. You know, he is a, he is a wonderful fucking guy. I will friends right up until he died. Hmm. He really, really good guy. Well, Tony, we'll be back for part two with more of like a lot of your life here on, on the podcast. And um, I hope you guys are enjoying the conversation. No worries. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to On The Couch With Hooli. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to leave us a rating on Apple or Spotify.